All right, we're going to get started. We've got a hard stop for Joe at 12.30, so we're going to get started and we're going to get cranking. So this is Product Tank. We get together and have a conversation with somebody about product and innovation. Uh, and uh, Joe is a long time, I mean, that makes you sound old. Uh, yeah. it, it, it is. He, he is old, so he is a long time product and innovation um, leader. So please help me welcome Joe Wetley. Thank you. So l let's uh, start from the beginning. Um, how was your childhood? No, how did you get into this racket? Right. Why, why be a product, brand, innovation person? How did you end up you know, wanting to, to do that? Or was it, did you find yourself doing it just by sheer dumb luck and then you figured out that you actually liked it? Yeah, no, uh, I, I'd say probably a little bit of both, I guess, at the end of the day. But, uh, you know, I started out uh, as a young entrepreneur, um, was in the food food service industry, opened up uh, my own place and did, did that for probably about a decade. Uh, and I'd say that's where I first got my first real introduction into the importance of new new product, new services, uh, you know, in order to compete uh, and, and offer some type of differentiated uh, opportunity to who you're going after. Um, and I reinvented myself, uh, you know, and, and went into the brand management route. But, uh, you know, really a lot of my experience um, ended up gravitating more towards the, the new, so where I had opportunities to take rotations in innovation, product development, uh, you know, M&A type, type activities, that's where I would always choose to go. Um, you know, I think I was fortunate enough to uh, lead and be involved with a couple of initiatives that delivered a lot of value um, towards, you know, to the organization. Um, you know, it was probably about maybe eight or ten years ago I found myself in a position where I was able to propose um, an innovation type type role to the organization you know didn't have one but uh, you know my goal was I wanted to do more of the new and where I had had success I was able to at least pitch look if I could do this all the time I think I could deliver you know x-fold uh, you know type type value so was fortunate enough to be given that opportunity uh, to pursue that and then uh, you know over time build a team uh, that that was focused on innovation so the opportunity to do it full-time and then bring in other folks that could do it uh, full time was really, uh, I'd say, the big opportunity uh, within the organization. And that turned out to be a very high value creation type uh, initiative within organizations uh, I was with. So, um, you know, I'd say that the brand management, uh, you know, helped me hone strategy skills, consumer insight skills, consumer behavior, uh, you know, those type of give me a lot of exposure to other functions like manufacturing. So it gave me a much, uh, the, the broad perspective that I think uh, helps when you are developing products so that you know truly start to finish what it takes. Um, but, but I'd say it was much, much more something that I pursued once I got into it than something that uh, I'd say I fell into. So give people a sense, Worthington Industries now in an innovation leadership role, give people a sense of some of the other organizations sure. and products that you've been a part of. Sure. Um, so I started uh, the brand management career with General Mills, so it's a big food food organization. Um, you know, I was in their uh, innovation group uh, for a couple of years and then worked into their uh, new ventures. So that was at the time, like, say, when organic foods was starting to become something new. So I spent a lot of my time looking for companies and competitive opportunities, which turned into a couple of acquisitions, like where we bought a brand called Cascadian Farms, and that became our big uh, organics type company. Uh, went to ConAgra Foods, another big, uh, you know, multi-billion dollar organization. 
uh, working on brands like Slim Jim, David Sunflower Seeds, Orville Redenbacher Popcorn. And a lot of that was new product. Uh, like, say, the big launch we had was the, the Cinnabon, Orville Redenbacher Popcorn. But I'd say, wouldn't call it pure innovation. That was a lot of... Uh, God, that sounds delicious. <laughs> it, it is. It, it is, and it was. Uh, I spent a lot of time eating that. But uh, very much learned uh, you know, the process of how to move uh, a product through an organization like that and working with a lot of the technical R&D folks. Um, you know, earlier on. So that, that one I had much more commercialization experience. Um, and then I came here to Columbus probably uh, it was a while ago, 13 years ago. Uh, there's a private company here uh, that had brands like Elmer's Glue, Crazy Glue, Exacto, Cutting Tools. Um, and, and even though those are very historic and uh, well-known brands, they, they had become very stagnant. Um, you know, so we went through a lot of reorganization and restructuring, but that, that was where I got the opportunity to uh, present an opportunity to create an innovation group um, to really start driving growth, um, true growth, instead of, you know, we were just doing a lot of uh, tinkering, little things at retail. is more positioning and pricing and trying to take out competition, but as far as bringing something new and understanding to consumer, we'd really gotten away from that. So um, that, that's, you know, it started off as a small group, a couple of technical folks and myself, and eventually, you know, the role grew where I had the entire uh, uh, R&D organization, so the chemists, the engineers, reporting up through me, the marketing group eventually reported up through me. Um, so aligning those groups really helped us accelerate uh, uh, our timelines to market, uh, aligning strategies very early on, and then keeping focus on key projects. Uh, but it was in that process, I'd say it took about three or four years to really get that uh, initiative, where I'd say it was a well-oiled machine. Um, but I'd say we kind of innovated ourselves uh, out of a job there, at least, in the fact that we had built a pipeline of such value that our owners um, you know, found that was the perfect time to sell. And, uh, you know, Elmer's sold for, I think it was about a 12 or 13 multiple, which for an old brand like that, um, far exceeded our expectations. So a very successful sale. Uh, we sold to Newell Rubbermaid, which is a, a much larger company, uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, so from there, you know, I kind of did some consulting for a while. I spent some time at Cardinal Health Fuse, um, trying to help them implement a, a more robust innovation process. Uh, you know, for what they were trying to, they, Fuse is trying to become more of an innovation hub instead of a software development group within the organization. Um, and then the opportunity came at Worthington where they have purchased some, uh, they bought some consumer retail type products um, and Worthington's very much more of a manufacturing driven, so it's a new, new frontier for them. Uh, but they need someone to come in there and help them organize around that and build a uh, kind of consumer driven innovation um, process. So that's, uh, you know, I've been doing that uh, since January and very much uh, enjoying that. So kind of building that team up, um, you know, so hopefully we can in a couple of years be a well-oiled machine. How hard was the sell at Elmer's to create an innovation discipline and group? Was, was it fairly well received and, and was it a fairly easy sell? And how long did it take from when you started talking to the rest of the leadership about doing it to where they got to a point of being comfortable with it and saying, yeah, let's do this. Okay. I'll say it was an easy sell in the fact that I didn't propose this grandiose vision out of the gate. It was just more allow me to backfill my position and have a broader scope over all of our businesses so that I could start developing business growth ideas. Now, I'd say it only took probably two or three months from that point. And, and I'll say it was an easy sell because I'd just come off a number of, I'll say, big wins within the organization where 
you know, it was just more like to say if I could free up some of my time, I could do more of it. Strike while they are on top, yeah, right? Exactly. Um, so, so it wasn't a huge investment for the organization in that regards. But within a couple of months, then the conversation was more, you know, we were just continually in touch. Uh, you know, I say, you know, on a daily basis with our president, it was just always the question of what do you need? What do you need? So it took me a couple of months to kind of figure out what would fit within that organization. And then it was just baby steps. You know, I said, I need, an, I need a creative engineer type person, you know, but someone that I can, can kind of, you know, bounce things off and just get creative with. And then, uh, you know, we needed uh, another kind of marketing type person and we needed consumer insights. But, you know, it was all maybe every three to six months we'd layer someone on where we kind of hit these pinch points. And I said, I can either go outside and really a lot of these were pitched as cost savings. Says so right now I'm doing so much consumer work with these agencies. If I can bring in someone that has some experience where we can do more of it in-house, you know, we'll save $100,000. So a lot of it was pitched as we'll either go neutral or we'll save money by us bringing this in-house. So I'd say I never had any pushback along the lines there, but it was putting a, a business case in front that made sense and then that I think made it easy. So you mentioned a team a little bit around sort of innovation and, and creating new products and identifying opportunities. What does, in your mind, that ideal small, nimble, but effective product team look like? So, I mean, I can only speak for, I'll say, retail-type products, but hopefully there's some, there's some crossover. Um, I like to have a, a mix of people, so I, I try to keep the overlap down as little as possible, but certainly a uh, technical person. So whether it's a chemist or an engineer, but someone that can uh, help understand manufacturing, but also understand what, what our companies can do and where we might need to look outside for technology. So they're, they're kind of my uh, uh, initial checkpoint. But industrial design, so just having someone that visually um, can not only rapidly produce prototypes and visuals that we can put in front of consumers for testing, but then also you know, understand the brand, what's going to have to be delivered at the end and understand manufacturing. But they're really the, the brand visual person that I need. Um, you know, a strategy person uh, that can help align within the organization, so probably more of a business or a marketing type type person has been a key for us. And when I say align with strategy, it's make, making sure that our group is always very closely connected with, I'll say, the commercialization teams, because we can develop a lot of things, but if there's not a alignment or a partner that will put their budget forth to commercialize it, it's wasted effort. Um, so you know, consumer insights is usually my first or second hire after the technical person, and, and that's the person that very much understands methodologies, how we can go after testing with the various customers or consumer segments, um, their ability to own a lot of that in-house, so eventually over time we want to be able to conduct these internally without having to go on the outside and use research agencies a lot. Um, and then there's project management, you know, things that just have to happen. We, we, haven't, we didn't have those at any of the organizations I've been at, just a real dedicated project manager, someone that, um, you know, was able to live the process, do all the collaborating, the networking within, but, you know, keep things on time and scope, all that kind of stuff, but just bringing the process and the rigor to it and saying this is real it's not you know innovation isn't in my opinion not some people say it just happens um, I'm more of a it's a process that the team goes through to deliver it and project management's a big part of it too do you hold any methodologies or processes sacred I mean do you do you have sort of a a philosophy that this is a proven process that you trust and believe in yeah I'd say process wise um, I'll say consumer insights is where I'd say that that's the process that we use. And we use a stage gate process, but for me, it's more 
it supports the consumer validation process. So there's multiple touch points across uh, any deliverable project where you start with consumers, you continue to go back with them uh, to validate every step of the way. Uh, so that, that's one that I, I hold sacred uh, is you don't skip over any of those consumer phases. Um, I'm a huge proponent of open innovation, which in, in my terms means that uh, the ideas can come from anywhere, the technology can come from anywhere, partners can come from anywhere, uh, very open to, you know, it's, at some point you're in sales, you're going knocking on people's doors trying to explain what you're trying to do and see if their technology or their process um, could benefit, um, you know, but, but those, those are big ones. And, and I'd say as far as there's other, one other thing that I'm a firm believer in is, at least in the world that I live in, is having the innovation team embedded within the core business unit. Um, I'm not a fan of, if you want to call it skunkworks, where it's just sent away to go figure something out. I feel like there's quite often disconnects with uh, strategies and alignments and commercialization. So it's not the same in every industry, but in my industry, I've found that that's something that like when, and when I came to Worthington, they said, let's just start it from scratch. They do have a separate innovation center. Uh, I chose not to put my team there, but just put them right in the middle of the, the functional groups um, so that as we're building up, you know, they can, we can align much better with the commercial team. How, how much of being good at innovation and product is cultural and getting that sort of strategic alignment and operation and commercialization alignment across the organization, how much of it is cultural versus systems and tools and, and those kinds of things? Because I think that's one of the reasons that those skunk works sort of setups don't work is because it's envisioned as you guys go over here and be innovative, we'll stay over here and run the shop to make sure that we have some money so mm -hmm. that you guys can be innovative and 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 then there there's complete there's two cultural differences right one is we're going to act fast and you know and break things and be innovative and then but we're going to stay over here and we're going to be conservative so how much of it is sort of a cultural buy-in that has to be a company-wide mm -hmm. perspective on it from my perspective i think it's huge and i think it's uh you know 90 percent of getting there is being able to embed that in a broader culture. So I'm, I'm huge at getting the process set up, having other people understand it and can work through it. I think you gotta you know, walk before you run and the process gets you there. Um, but if it's just a small team that lives the culture and the rest of the organization does business as usual, um, I think when it comes time to capturing the value, uh, you'll get minimal results. You won't capture the value that, that could be generated. So having our team embedded there, we collaborate on a daily basis with sales, operations, marketing. Um, we invite them, and, and we've made that part of their annual growth plan. So like 10% of their growth plan has to be dedicated to getting involved with, with our team. Um, the goal eventually is that we can have some type of rotational program within the organization so that more people over time experience working in the innovation group, and then as they go into other rotations, they take some of that uh, spirit to the culture, so that, that's a longer-term vision for my So myself. what does that mean? Somebody who's in a particular line of business would, would extricate themselves from that line of business, become a cog in the innovation team, run a cycle there or a couple of cycles, and then go back 
into a line Correct. of business and an, yep. and an operational role? So a marketing person, a finance person. Now, I, ideally, they want to select into it. They have to have some type of passion for it. Yeah, you don't want to pull yeah. them kicking exactly. and screaming in, right? Exactly. But, but that, that's the goal, um, you know, so whether you want to call it an experiment or not. But uh, I've had enough folks in other ex uh, roles come into our group, run a cycle, and then they've gone out to be a salesperson. But then they understand so much better the process, what it takes. They know how to mine for ideas and strategies with their accounts and their customers. So just getting exposed to the things that happen in product development, um, I think, totally benefits anybody in their job once they move on. So Joe and I hit it off when we, when we, we met and started talking because, um, you know, the, the consumer insights and getting and staying close to customers is sort of one of, one of my, you know, pet peeves and, and, and sacred things. Um, we also sort of aligned on you can't be good at innovation if you're not good at product. So, it, and you've seen innovation, you know, operations. Why aren't more innovation operations? Why don't they realize that? And why aren't they good at product? Where's the disconnect between we want to be innovative and we're identifying all these things that we could be, do in these opportunities, and yet the ability to execute goes waning. Yeah, no, I, I think there's uh, there's a couple of things that I've, I've lived through, and I'm hopefully you know uh, avoiding them this time around. But yeah, everybody's got a process, you know. We've I've, we've got a 4D, you know, it's a dream, design, develop, deliver, whatever. But that's the the piece that I've added to it that is has to be there is the strategic alignment. So now it's I have direct. You have to have the direction up front with the alignment with the leadership of the organization to say these are the areas that we're resourced or that we are capable of capturing value. These are areas that we want to, we want to compete here, but you have to have that direction before you go start ideating and coming up with ideas and that type of stuff in order to then be able to bring back the alignment and, and have a partner at the end that will commercialize it for you. Um, the other piece that you mentioned is the ability to take ideas and then actually commercialize them, meaning put it through the execution uh, of either manufacturing it or developing the software. Um, and that's the piece that the project management brings in to the table. And, and we don't do the baton handoff. Our innovation team doesn't you know, cut it off at the design phase and say the rest of the organization takes it. Uh, the reason that I'm a big proponent of aligning more functional groups together, um, so you have the R&D group, which would include in our, our, the engineers that handle manufacturing, uh, the marketing group. You align all those together so that it does flow much more in alignment through the entire process than when you have the companies that have this baton handoff. There's a loss of technology. There's a loss of consumer knowledge. Uh, and then there's a lot of times where people are like, I didn't ask for this. Uh, so when you can have that alignment with the leadership group at the beginning, there's no, I didn't ask for this. The organization is all every step along the way saying yes this is something this is our strategy and you and you think the the principles and approaches uh, that you've seen that you seem work and now believe in are applicable whether you're talking about a physical product or a software product or any other kind of product you know fundamentally right these Absolutely. are sort of product agnostic right Absolutely so I mean the big difference I think between like software and consumer products or physical products that I deal with is supply chain. You know, there's a manufacturing plant somewhere in 
town or country that, that you have to deal with, and, and there's a lot of regulatory issues to get it on the shelf at Walmart or Home Depot. So those are things uh, that at least my time, like with Fuse and other software companies, you don't have to deal with. But the reality is, is the process in general is the same, and it's, it's the commitment to the rigor uh, of innovation. And, and, and at the end of the day, it's hard. It, it's not a flip the switch on and, and here we go, and a lot of organizations want it to be that way. Uh, but it takes time to identify ideas that are big enough and then to find partnerships or find skill sets within your organization that can do it. Uh, and then to your, to your point, bring something new into, like say a big company like Worthington that's really good at certain things and when they make a ton of money. But then to squeeze something in there and say, that's not our wheelhouse. We actually have to rely on someone else to make part of this. That's new. Um, so you have to be able to map out the timing that it takes to get this going so that there's some repetition to say, okay, it's okay. I'm not going to lose my job because someone else is making something for us. So there's a lot of things that go into uh, the physical product that's maybe not there in the software, but I still think it's the same rigor that you have to commit to and the same steps that you go through. When companies are, aren't successful at doing this and they build bad products that then don't give them the return and the outcomes that they want, is it because they've mostly been undisciplined in the execution and, and the rigor and they sort of, they just want to hit the easy button? And, and so then they, they violate sort of the primary principles of, of the process and execution? Often. It's not always. Um, you know, I'd say I, 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 I can't get into all the detail of the process, but some of the big things that, that the companies will skip over are the continuous consumer validation. So they, they get a good concept early on and then they just run with it and instead of going back and continuing to say our this concept that you raised your hand and fell in love with is what we put in front of you now delivering that and quite often it's usually not and you have to do a lot of work to get it back you know steered back towards that um, the business case is another big one that i don't think a lot of companies have a robust enough business case uh, process that they go through early on uh, they don't account for competitive reactions. They don't account for, I'll say, the incre it's tough to get an incremental cash flow. A lot of times, especially companies that are established and you're selling products into the same channels, they'll put forth budgets that it's, this is, it's a $20 million project. It's a $20 million idea. But the reality is it's similar to things that you're doing. So you're taking you know, at the end of the day, you might make an extra million dollars revenue, and because it costs more, you might even lose on it. So it, it's tough to go through those discussions early, but the business case is something I see a lot of companies don't put enough rigor into it and enough reality into it. Uh, the competitive nature is tough, especially when you look into a new space. It looks like it's all greenfield for you, but the reality is you're probably going into somebody's space that that's all they do. They don't have other channels or businesses to go in, and they'll, they'll, they'll put everything they have into it to fight back. And a lot of times the companies won't get the results they want, and then they'll say, I don't really have the appetite to go after it like this guy's going after it. So you got to be able to have those kind of discussions ahead of time and just say, how committed are we truly to this? If it's, hey, if we get a hit, we get a hit, okay how much resources you want to put towards that, or if you say this is the future of our business, then you have to go after it that way, and I think a lot of companies don't have those kind of portfolio discussions early enough on. 
I'm fascinated why as people and as, as product teams and companies, we don't, we don't get and stay close to customers. So as you said, oftentimes a company will go out and around a particular initiative and they'll do some initial research and we're also flawed in that we want our hypothesis to be proven correct, right? So we don't want it to be disproven, which means we often do the research and talk to customers in a way that proves the hypothesis correct so that we can talk about how smart we are and how, how right we are. Um, but even then, let's say that it did, our hypothesis is sort of proven correct initially. Why don't we go back to those customers? Why isn't that an open line of communication and collaboration that is just used and leveraged consistently? What is, what is it in your mind about us as humans and product people that we don't get and stay close to customers? Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of it is, business-wise, it's timelines. You know, that's, it's a tough thing. The consumer and the behavior research, it's, it's hard. You know, there's a lot of, because you can't just make decisions on I talk to two or three people. It takes a lot of time to get to enough scale where you start interpreting it in a way where you think, like, there is a bucket here big enough for us to go after. But then the timelines come into play, and I think the, the big issue is most organizations do not have enough ideas in the pipeline of the right size value um, that they're able to sequence them. And, and, and that's the piece that takes time, is to build a pipeline that's large enough so eventually the goal is to have a pipeline that's big enough, that's resourced, and there's enough things that are close enough within like a three to six month range that can go that it's the organization's decision to say, I'm gonna, we're going to do that one. This is the one we're going to invest in. But most organizations think they have a big pipeline. They'll have a few. And, and you know your chances of actually success of those is so low that a, a few is going to mean it's just reality. Every organization needs something to grow. So they're going to grab one even if it's not ready or it's because they, sh they showed a prototype to a big customer, whatever. They're all in, so we're, we're going. We got the sale. We're going. Must show progress. Yeah. So in my, in my world, you can get it on the shelf. That's one of the big steps in the process. But if you haven't truly done the work, um, it dies. You know, the consumers will try it in today's world with social media and reviews and all that kind of stuff. If you haven't really given them a quality product, something that gives them some type of value above and beyond what their other choices are, then it dies. Uh, and, and I think that that is the piece that I continue to hammer on within the organizations is say, we know we've got some short-term things we have to deliver. You know, so that's one thing that our team can show we'll execute. We can show that we can execute. But as we move forward, it has to be more consumer-driven. We have to have more in the pipeline so that we can take the time on these initiatives to vet them, to funnel them, to prioritize, but then to be able to go back and forth with the customers. Because you can, companies will spend millions and millions of dollars developing and commercializing, and then they can't make money. But it's mostly because they skip over the validation steps um, to just make sure that something that was a good, if they've done the work to even get the thumbs up the consumer, a lot of organizations will take the internal idea because this is what we can do. It sounds cool. I got a gut reaction, and they go with it. But it, it, the investment it takes and the resources it takes to do that is just, uh, in my, it's prohibitive to truly do that. But organizations still do it today. How do you balance those, that customer feedback and, and the customer input with 
your vision and the outcomes that you need from a product. Because sometimes they're in alignment, and when they're in alignment, then you've you know then you've got good customer product fit, and you're onto something. What what about when they're not in alignment though, and and but there's still an opportunity, and that you know customers are saying, I I wouldn't value what you're talking about, but something tangential to that I would value, and I would pay for, and I would use. And, and, and then how do you shift your business outcomes to then align with some, you know, with what customers are saying and the feedback they're providing? How do you strike that balance between your vision for a product and needs as a company and the validation and feedback you're getting from customers? No, and, and that can be difficult. Um, I lean towards the, the consumer or the customer. Uh, I always tell my team, we're not in sales. It's, it's not our job to stand up and get the organization excited and jacked up about some idea so we can move it forward. Okay, our role is to deliver Do you facts. know how unusual that is in innovation? Because it's it's only in- because I've lived through where I've gotten people all jacked up and excited, <laughs> and, and it's not fun when... The letdown is uh, severe. Yeah. So, you know, I'd say early in my career, I'll, I'll be honest, you know, I'd say I was probably trying to justify my role, my team's existence, yeah, yes, we, we've got cool things. We've got cool things. And I guess I've gotten older, and that it, it doesn't deliver value. You know, I need to be able to be realistic in front of leaders, and if they don't want to hear it, um, I'll say our, our job is to create ideas that can deliver value, but if we don't have one or if it's not far enough along to show it or sell it, I've learned you just don't show it. Uh, you can show board of directors things, and odd as it sounds, sometimes you show a pretty picture and that's all it takes and they'll be all excited and then in their mind, it's done and it's shipped. You will go there six months later or a year later and they won't forget. They're in love with it. Where is it? Why is it not revolutionizing our company? Um, so it will come eventually. You know. So I've just learned you, you have to be realistic. Um, you don't show things just for fun. You don't show things to get people excited. That happens within your team, and it happens in ideation sessions, and you try to create some things. But you have to validate things and talk facts and talk business uh, instead of pretty images because eventually that, that, the pictures aren't sustainable. That's not something that will truly deliver value. Uh, I'm going to throw it out for questions. I've got, uh, I've got one more I'm going to ask Joe. Um, it, how, if someone isn't good at product today, and they're not good at innovation today. How can they, because you talked about sort of starting small mm-hmm. and, and not thinking that you're going to go from zero to 1,000, right, in, in 60 days. Yes. How can someone start small and begin the process of getting good at it if they're not currently good at it? Sure. So, well, for an organization, I think the, the big piece initially is, as hard as it is, take the look in the mirror, you know, understand where you have strengths and where you have weaknesses, it's okay to say we're weak in an area, we're not creative, we're not good at putting things through, we don't have ideas. Um, try to identify people that maybe have shown sparks, but sometimes you do bring people in from the outside that can have experience, that can accelerate things. If they fit, it can uh, dramatically improve results there. But when I say you know small steps, start with a small team of one or two people and say this is, this is your job. Now, not 20% of it, and when big issue with Walmart comes up, forget it. 
you know, because that's what normally happens. Right. Um, but just being able to bring in skill sets, send send for training. But if you really want to accelerate things, sometimes I think it's fine. You bring in, let, let 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 them bring in the outside uh, help to do it. Um, but but then when I say take small chunks, just take the time to look at strategy. I think a lot of organizations move past. Yeah, we got a strategy. We know what we're doing. But but do you do enough people in the room answer the question the same way? so that you know you're there, and, and if you're not, take the time to align the strategy, and don't do them all. Pick one or two. Here's an area we want to support or go after, and have the team go after that. You know, Once you get some repetitions as an organization, you can grow, you can scale, you can add headcount as you need to, um, with the idea of saying, okay, now instead of one area, we want to look at four areas. Um, but like I said, just, just take a small chunk of strategy and go with it and have a couple people focus on it and see how they can put a process that can work for your organization in place that other people can come in and out of it. Darren's got a microphone, so if you, two microphones actually. Um, he's uh, doing double duty with microphones. Um, very talented of you. <laughs> if you've got a question, ask Dar Darren. He'll give you a microphone. Joe, thanks for this. Um, how do you measure value drain uh, across the organization beyond the traditional sales forecast change, changes that occur between when your product development, your designers, your innovators come up with a product that de determine the customer need, and then the, when you start to actually develop the product across the supply chain and product changes. So how do you keep that whole business beyond just sales forecast? I hope I'll answer the question. If not, you know, let me know. One of the reasons why I say, you know, you have to talk to leaders and you have to talk business to them is you know, with innovation, you have to be able to put metrics um, to every step of the process. So when I say I brought in project management, one of, the, one of the roles there for that person is to also do resource management. So it's understanding who's working on what, how much are we paying internally, how much do we pay on the outside. But for each project, you know, from start to finish, we're... we're trying to get as tight as we can to put costs to every segment of it. And, and we're going back in time a little bit. So these are, we have projects that my team is finishing up, but that we're going two or three years before me. But we're, we're pulling all the costs out for those too. And, and what we're just trying to do is not trying to say people did a bad job, but we want to put some benchmarks in place. I think the idea that I mentioned is eventually I want to be able to propose bringing in people because we'll save money. At Worthington, they spend a lot of money on outside resources, and the projects drag on. They've gone three years. Now it's ready to commercialize. Nobody even wants it. It's a segment that they thought of two years ago. So the misalignment was bad, but being able to capture the costs uh, associated with the project uh, from, from the research to the prototypes to the tooling costs, anything that you have, um, it's not fun to put that forward sometimes because it is a big number. But again, when you're trying to talk reality, you also have to say, we keep talking about these incremental wins we're going to get, but let's keep in mind it came at a cost, and how long is it going to take us to recoup those? I'm not sure if I am getting Yeah, that you did. You, know, okay. you have these innovators and people that invent products, and they've got this, they can be very artistic yeah. you know, and create it, and they have this vision of what their customer need is. Oh, yeah, but yeah. when you put it, the, you know, the actual to paper and you yes. have to run this through a factory and the factory can't assemble that yes. product. So then, you know, the, that initial value changes. 
Yes. And it's really managing that across a, a larger organization when typically it's just, you know, how does that impact our sales forecast? So those, those are, when I, when I mentioned I don't like, I don't show anything, I don't propose anything to management, uh, there, there is a cutoff. Our, our team has to have things. So our small six, seven person team owns that, that piece of it. So we'll do obviously the consumer validation, but we'll also do the feasibility part of it. We'll, we'll gain, is it manufacturable? And if it's not us, can we find a legitimate partner that we've got legitimate prototypes from that have given us a cost so we can do our business case analysis uh, and wrap that all up. So by the time we go on and say we validate it with consumers, we validate it manufacturing, there has not been this organizational drain. It's been very tight with people dedicated to it. Um, we've tried to flush it out as best we can, but until we don't allow, the sales team doesn't create the business case. We'll, our team creates it from a kind of a more uh, market dynamic, so to speak, because the sales folks, whoever handles Home Depot, I got to have it. I got to have something new, and they'll put together a sweet-looking case. Um, but at the end of the day, not enough eyeballs have really checked it out. So we try to say we're the impartial team. I hope it can go somewhere, but I'm not going to fall in love with anything here. Um, I have ideas that go in and get killed, even though I thought they were great. But the reality is it has to prove out uh, financially before it gets resourced. So I'm not going to put a bunch of engineers and and that kind of stuff and packaging people and all that stuff on a project until we've got to that point where we say this is this is live and legit. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Hi. Um, this is maybe a two-part question. How do you, um, as you're putting your team together, how do you incentivize them and how do you evaluate them? But also, how are you as the leader of that team evaluated by, by the, 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 large, the executives? So some of it's on my plate to deliver that. I'd say, you know, I didn't walk into situations at any point in my career where those metrics existed. Um, I think I, I put those together more for my own sanity because I want to be able to keep score. And, and to your point, the folks on my team, so some of it's timeline driven. And, and, and when I say timeline, yes, there's a deliverable, but even to say we're going to focus on certain areas of the company that align with strategy for this quarter. And out of that, each one of you needs to have delivered three ideas that have gone through our validation process that, that win. Um, so certainly there's a lot of training on here's how, what the levers are to get them through and that kind of stuff. But you know, my team being full time, I expect that 80 to 90% of the ideas that come into our funnel come from my team in some fashion or another, whether they're out there tech scouting or whatever it is. Um, but that should be a big part. So, so there's like a salesperson, you say you've got quotas, you know, part of your time has to be in the upfront ideation part, give us stuff to assess. Um, then there's the metrics of what's your hit rate. You know, we put percentage, so just like a major league baseball player, you gotta have a, a batting average above 300 for you to be considered really good. So that means you gotta know how to identify a good you know, idea and how to percolate it uh, type stuff. Um, we don't have revenue targets in our team but it's more about uh, the value of the pipeline. So projects over time will receive a value um, and, and it, it's market driven. So 10 million, 100 million, you know, type stuff. But identifying those, when you talk about incentives, part of the incentives uh, for our team are aligned with uh, identifying quality ideas and then size of the ideas. Um, so there is part of our cash payout tied to the value of the pipeline. 
what I love about your approach and, and the team and how you structure thing is the scientific nature right of it that you've got to be able to measure it all because that's what, how you know whether something's working or not and individual people's con, you know contributions. I mean, this is a very scientific approach to creating products, which I think is is lacking because it's done in a very undisciplined way now typically right it's the it's the old oh let's just get excited that we're going to go try and do something creative and new i mean that's not that's not sustainable and doesn't produce any results taking a scientific approach now gives you at least a chance at finding some things that you're actually going to deliver some value mm-hmm. from Exactly. You know, and one of the things that I wasn't sure about is, because it's just the reality in, in the space that we play in, it's a combination of you need creatives, you need creative folks that think like not everybody else, but then it also has to be translated at some point to a technical person or a manufacturing or someone that's going to be, you know, more producing it, so to speak. And when I was putting a lot of these systems in place, I wasn't sure that the creatives would be able to thrive in that. But so that's been one positive that I've seen that uh, I'm, I'm, they, the, the folks that I've worked with, I say they've enjoyed having focus given to them to say, well, what are the areas that you want me to create around? Um, and, and they haven't been stymied. So I think sometimes where we've seen where we say it's, it could be anything, there, there is a paralysis and a stymie that comes with that. Um, so being able to put some parameters and process around it, but certainly give, give them the opportunity to be creative in an environment that, that will support it. But you know, anybody, even the, the real creatives I found, they want to see things move through. And if they see so many of their ideas just continue to die, eventually, you know, they're, they're smart people. And they say, what, what it, what, what, what are, where am I failing here? What am I doing yeah. here? Right. And so, so being able to educate them and say, here's how these projects are, are validated, and here's how they're scored, and here's how they're weighted, and all that kind of stuff. So giving that education to them, they just want to know. And then as they're you know, going through things, they say, I get it. My idea is cool, but it's with such a small target. I, we're in business. I get it. We can't make money. So you know, I, I don't want to squash that. But you say, well, is there any way to expand upon it? Um, and if not, then they can move on. But uh, I've been pleased with how the creative folks have adapted to a structured process. And that's really translated into the other rest of the organization, the manufacturing folks and uh, other technical folks. Is they kind of think that way. So that, that's been a, a good learning for me um and i wasn't it was kind of an experiment but that's something that for mine when you say like what do i hold true that that process is something i hold true we'll do one more question and then joe's got to get out of here yeah brian yeah um i don't know worthington very well but i understand they have a fairly sizable b2b component how does that change your innovative process your uh, extension of your need to check with the client and the customer that you're doing well how are you are you driving innovation into a b2b sale so my team does not, all right? So we are strictly focused on the consumer retail, uh, consumer packaged goods. This is um, a, a laboratory setting within Worthington, if you will. So the goal is to show that you can embed uh, an innovation team within the various business units, and it can create value. So as I'm recruiting folks, um, you know, that's one of my serious recruiting pitches is to say my goal is that we get this baby humming in this group within two to three years and then the opportunity is for people to start spreading their wings and moving on and now you're going to set up 
uh, an innovation group in our oil and gas business, or you're going to set up an innovation group in our steel business. But the idea is to say that you will take the discipline learned here, and it'll be the similar process. You're engaging with a different end consumer, but at the end of the day, it's still that back and forth validation piece with the consumer um, that should carry on. So within Worthington, they're very anxious to see this percolate and develop, but that, that's the, the goal or the vision would be to say that instead of having this overarching corporate innovation group that's somehow supposed to know everything about everything, um, let's develop some expertise within the various business units. So this is a bit, like I said, an experiment uh, to a certain degree, um, but that's the goal and, and the way that I think I've been able to attract some um, pretty nice talent to my team is that I think they, they do see opportunities for themselves to you know, then take on their own team at some point. Please help me thank Joe for joining us this afternoon. Thank you.